Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I speak with Mauricio Noronha, who's currently at Cardozo Law School's Catherine O. Greenberg Immigration Justice Clinic, where he supervises clinic students on individual representation and impact litigation matters. He also drives large-scale immigration policy advocacy projects. And before joining the clinic, Mauricio was a supervising attorney at African Services Committee in New York City, where he led a team providing comprehensive legal services to immigrants and asylum seekers in New York City. And before that, he also had his own solo immigration practice. He's a graduate of Baruch College, Go Bearcats, and CUNY School of Law, Go Beavers, where he was a Haywood Burns Fellow in Civil and Human Rights and participated in the International Women's Human Rights Clinic. Uh, I haven't had the chance to interview an immigration attorney, and I asked a dear friend and colleague for a recommendation, and Mauricio was, was her recommendation, and I'm just so, so grateful that you uh, agreed to be on the podcast. So thanks for being here. Hi, Jonah. Thank you so much for the invite. I'm super psyched to, to be chatting with you today. Awesome. So look, I like to start these conversations by just talking a little bit about your path before law school, before your identity as an attorney, and now as a sort of budding clinician. What was the path to law school and, and to immigration work more specifically? Yeah, um, in some ways it was predictable, and you'll get to hear why in some ways it wasn't. So I I think it started back when I actually arrived in this country as a 14-year-old from Ecuador. I, I was undocumented for several years. I was undocumented when I went to law school. But having said that, I, I did not envision myself working in immigration law for a few reasons. It wasn't something that I wanted to do. I was interested generally in public interest law. And, and some of the path that I chose as I first going to CUNY and in choosing the International Women Human Rights Clinic was sort of a part of the motivation for, for me to kind of do this. But it wasn't immigration in particular, again, that I wanted to do. And it just sort of happened afterwards. Part of the reason I didn't want to be an immigration lawyer was that my family had some, some like not great experiences with immigration lawyers generally. And another reason was that it was too personal and too close to sort of my own lived experiences. And in some ways, I wanted to escape it and not sort of fall into the idea that I was going to do that because that was my life experience. Um, That's not the reason or the sole reason I do immigration law. I've actually fallen in love with it um, substantively and procedurally. And we can chat a little bit more about sort of some of the ways in which I see it now and sort of ways in which I interpret the work that I do. But yeah, so it was not what I wanted to do. I did want to do public interest law and I, I what I do now, nonetheless. Awesome. And we'll, we'll get to hear a little bit more about your what interests you about immigration law and how you practice it. But before we do, I'd wonder if, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about maybe then the decision to become a lawyer, especially given, given your path and your arrival to this country and, and what, what made you decide at the very least, that the law and public interest was the path for you, given sort of where you came from and, and your background. Part of the experience of being undocumented and living in an impacted community was sort of that I 
even when I was in high school, I would work with organizations and sort of like attended meetings by organizations that were staffed by lawyers. There's a lot of sort of lawyer, lawyer kind of motivated activism. I love that phrase, lawyer motivated activism. I love that. And, you know, like some, some of that needs to be reconsidered where sort of lawyers definitely have a role, but don't have to have like the main role in sort of leading activism. And in fact, in some cases, it needs to be responsive to, to what the community does. But that was the situation. So even while in high school, I would attend sessions and gatherings to try to learn more about the things that were impacting me. And and so, and I met really wonderful people that I admired, uh, both because of the work that they were doing and the ways in which they were doing it in a very passionate and sort of also intellectually stimulating sorts of ways. And and so the idea of going to law school sort of kind of crystallized at some point as a way of combining this interest for kind of having some political take on on practice and and also as a way of kind of exercising some of the more intellectual like problem solving uh, puzzle solving kind of aspects of of the law and and so that that's how i eventually said this is what i want to do it doesn't seem like there's anything else that sort of combines those those different aspects sure and if you don't mind me asking, you know, what were some of the maybe less positive experiences that you had with lawyers and how have how do you think about that now as someone who practices in the law and teaches future law students? Because I think I've heard that from several other guests in different areas that their experience with lawyers, both positive and negative early in their life, often defines how they want to sort of share the legal profession with the world. That's a great insight. I, I think it impacted what I do in my decision in a few ways. One one of them was the power differential that exists between lawyers and people who are sort of affected in some ways by, by legal systems and and sort of that distance that is generated. And, and you know, in, in the case of an immigration kind of issue, it is even more so. Regularly, there's a power differential between an individual and an attorney even more so for an individual who's sort of facing legal systems that they're unaware of and that they're completely unfamiliar with. And so the feeling of having this power differential where things were not being explained, where sort of like there were assumptions as to who we were, who my family was, that's one aspect. And in fact, one one thing that I work, not just in the way that I practice, but I try to pass it on to my students. And Absolutely. I, I recently um, was chatting with a client who had a really nice result in, in a clinic case. And the one thing that he highlighted was the way that we approached discussions with him and his family. And so he had an amazing win. But the, the one thing that he mentioned was he's, he, he told me, I don't know if you train your students this way or they're just like that. But I really appreciated the way that you explained things to us and the way that you approached our conversations. And, and so that meant a lot. And as you're mentioning, and I think it does have a lot to do with my own experiences before. And and then there were there were other experiences that are unfortunately familiar for many people, which is situations where lawyers do not conduct themselves in the most ethical way and sort of like take advantage of situations. And I had family members, including my own parents, who sort of suffered through that, sort of not being told things in their sort of full scope and and sort of getting their expectations where they were not supposed to be. And so, you know, that sort of basic level sense of clarity and ethics is, is something that definitely kind of both made me not want to get into that area, but also informs the way that I, that I practice now and hopefully the way that I try to train my students as well to practice. 
Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And and I can only imagine what it's like to hear from a client who's dealing with such a challenging moment to say, not only did you get me the result, but you you treated me fairly and kindly and empathetically and you listened and you explained. Are there other things that we should be training our law students to sort of be better situated to handle one-on-one interactions with people who may have less familiarity with the legal system than they do? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think one overall sentiment that sometimes expressly and sometimes implicitly I try to pass on to, to students is the law has some basic benefit in terms of organizing society, but it it is in many ways a neutral kind of benefit that can be used in many different ways. And so one of the things that I tell my students is to, to not develop their identities based on them being lawyers and to understand the context under which they're practicing and the way that they're interacting with clients. So that this divide that I was mentioning before of like lawyer-client is somewhat kind of addressed. I think that's another aspect that I think is key, especially in, in the way that you know we tend to relate to individuals who who experienced this divide more strongly. And let's go back to your story. So you graduate from law school and you fairly quickly enter kind of a direct services, direct representation posture first on your own and then pretty quickly for a uh, sort of a slightly larger organization. Talk to me what it was like to work in direct representation. What were your days like? Who? What were your clients like? What kind of cases were you handling? I began a solo practice, which was supported and endorsed by a program at CUNY, which is an incubator program. And, and, and the goal is to have individuals who are either working in impacted communities or come themselves from impacted communities add to the sort of army of rep- legal representation that's available. Sort of another way of equipping individuals with legal representation is to support solo practitioners. And so, and so that's what I decided to do right out of law school. And in some ways, I had been prepared in immigration matters, again, on my own for, for some time. So I started dabbling and also interacting, with other, obviously, with other people who had far more experience. But it was incredibly challenging to do immigration law, which is already very complex on an individual level. And so it took me a few years to kind of get situated and feel myself that where I was confident enough to take on more complex matters. It was incredibly rewarding, however, to be able to be in the community and work with individuals that I hadn't known before originally and, you know, and to kind of get a good sense of the like variety of experiences and not just sort of be left with my own lived experience in terms of understanding what's what's it like to both be an immigrant and to practice immigration. At some point I felt like the, you know, I was lacking enough resources to do the work that was needed that I saw um, individuals needing it. And so I decided to go to a nonprofit organization, which is African Services Committee. And one thing that was amazing about that is that I had this level of familiarity with both my clients and the issues when I started law school that I didn't have when I went to African Services Committee that's an entirely different population. And from things as basic as the language, it, it was completely different. And the sources of relief that are available for people from different countries and different experiences. So it was amazing to get that sort of wider, more robust sense of what was out there. And that was African Services Committee in a way. It's also 
a holistic organization that not only does legal services, it provides um, health, housing, and other sources of support. And so getting a good sense of that was also incredibly illuminating and, and helpful for me. Yeah. And what kinds of matters were you working on? Were you in court a lot? Were you writing documents? Were you meeting with clients? One of the things I like to try to do on this podcast is sort of like demystify what it is that certain types of lawyers are doing all day. And what you say sounds like there could be so many possibilities. I guess I'm just curious, what were your days like? Yeah. So many possibilities is exactly what I encountered at ASC. So one of the particularities of this organization was that it had a pretty open sort of concept in, in terms of funding. In immigration, a lot of what you do ends up being related to what your organization is funded for. And that might limit the types of work that you're doing and might also limit the types of individuals that you're working with. Generally, one of the ways in which we think of immigration work is to divide it in terms of defensive and, non, and, and affirmative work. Defensive meaning individuals who are facing removal proceedings and are in court. And affirmative work, which is somebody might have some way to access permanent status or otherwise some form of lawful status and do it through through the affirmative agency component of the Department of Homeland Security. And so those are individuals who are not doing, who are not going to court and it's more of a paperwork kind of thing. African Services Committee had an approach of like what's needed and we'll do that. And the sources of funding were thankfully not limited to just one particular aspect. So the cases that I was dealing with went from something like humanitarian-based relief, asylum specifically in the asylum office, individuals who were not facing removal proceedings. So familiarizing ourselves with the politics, the country conditions of different places was one of the things that I would normally do, and which actually is part of what made me fall in love with immigration law. It's in many ways an area of practice that sort of involves and encapsulates non-legal aspects in a way that I haven't seen many others do, right? So in order for you to do an asylum case, you need to understand, depending on the context, the politics of a country, the history of a country. And that level of understanding is great because it sort of like moves you away from the hard black letter law that you might be encountering or like statutes or regulations. And so we did a bunch of uh, humanitarian-based relief. We also represented individuals who were facing removal proceedings in many cases, on account of encounters with the criminal legal system. And so that tends to be more of, you know, lawyering in the courtroom, as well as briefing, legal briefing, not, not as much as this sort of broader kind of understanding of the world, but very interesting nonetheless. So I open funding in a way sort of allowed me to both address what was needed and, and also get a good taste of the different kinds of practices that are part of, of immigration law. Sure. And one of the things you also said was there's sort of a inherent complexity to the immigration system, sort of on top of, I think what you implied was maybe that that's on top of the general complexity of the law as a whole. What makes immigration law sort of different from other substantive areas of, of law? You know, it's been described as labyrinthine and second in complexity to tax law. One interesting point, I had a student, we recently worked on a case where we were able to vacate the criminal convictions of a client, two decades uh, old criminal convictions for a client, and then we moved on to 
getting this client's removal order, which had been premised on those convictions, to be vacated as well. And so our students got a chance to work with both the criminal legal system for the vacatures and the immigration legal system for the reopening of this person's removal order. And one of the things my student told me was that it was far more difficult to move into the immigration end for a few reasons. So in addition to just the general complexity because of the sheer amount of statutes and regulations that might be implicated in a case, there's also a lot of obscurity that does not exist even in the criminal legal system. And, you know, I, I don't think that I would say that the criminal legal system is an example of clarity. And so the comparison is important. So my student mentioned how when we were working with the vacatures, there was black letter law, or at least published decisions that we could base our thinking on. When we moved to immigration, that did not exist as much. And we were relying on research of hundreds of unpublished cases that obviously have no presidential value because the Board of Immigration Appeals, which oversees the immigration courts, has a very particular way of deciding which cases they're going to create precedent on. And, and so it was very difficult to get a good, clear sense of what the law actually meant. That was not the case in the criminal legal system. So that's one thing. The other thing is, it is a system where you don't get a chance to see the people that you're interacting with. So my student mentioned how it was really easy to go to criminal court and speak to a clerk when we wanted to get some documents that were critical for our client's case, but we couldn't speak to someone or visit someone when we were dealing with the removal order. And in fact, we had submitted a motion to reopen this person's uh, removal order. We didn't even know which judge at the Board of Immigration Appeals was going to discuss that issue. So this level of obscurity is really a, a very peculiar kind of particularity of the immigration system that makes it very, very complex, makes it very complex to practice on your own. You know, one of the sort of results of this is that immigration tends to be a very like, community-based area of practicing where people rely a lot on somebody else's experiences and on listservs and so the community aspect of that is great. The reason why community is even needed in the first place isn't, right? It, it is it's a function of just the obscurity under which it, it, the system works. Yeah, it's so interesting because I've never really thought about it. And I want to pick at the thread a little bit, this idea of how the court is set up, right? We sort of, I was a civil litigator, right? You take for granted sort of first day law school or even going back to like, how a bill becomes a law. This is the way the court system works. This is what a precedential opinion is. This is how opinions get to be precedential. This is how a case interacts. But when you're in a totally different, almost like its own world, where the rules are different, the rules it sounds like are often stacked against the clients that you are representing, and that the way the system works sounds like it can be just as much of a challenge as the facts and law, which by definition are also quite challenging. Is that accurate? Entirely accurate. And I think against the backdrop of this reality is the fact that the consequences, you know, will derive from the law are as bad as you can guess, right? Like one of the consequences of a removal proceeding might be permanent exile from the country and permanent separation from your family. So that's terrible. Part of the consequence of a bond proceeding or just 
being placed in immigration detention might be that you don't get a chance to even go before a judge to prove that you're not a flight risk or a, a risk to the community. And so the consequences are significant. And so coupled with the obscurity, it is really quite a challenge. And it's something that it's interesting that a student had to kind of raise it <laughs> in indirect comparison within one particular case for me to sort of say, yes, you're absolutely right. It, it, this is not something that I've been thinking of because I grew up on immigration law as a lawyer. And we sort of often joke about going to even a criminal court and saying like, oh, this is what a real court looks like. Right. It feels organized and whatnot. You know, one of the other things that I had the experience when I was a law clerk on the Second Circuit was just the sheer quantity. So there's a quality challenge, which I think you've captured beautifully, although depressingly. But there's also a quantity challenge, especially, um, you know, I was in New York City, especially in New York, I'm sure in other places. Talk to me a little bit about the quantity aspect, if you can, of immigration law and just the sheer number of clients who need representation and the sheer challenge of the court system and those who are part of it servicing and responding to those clients. Yeah, I mean, so one of the major things here is that there is no right to defense, to legal defense in the immigration court, in an immigration court proceeding, right? You might be able to hire a lawyer, but a lawyer is not provided to you, even though, again, the consequences might be just as brutal as they can be in the criminal legal system. And so we depend a lot on different sources of funding. You know, this idea of funding, the way that I mentioned African services is because funding is so critical for, for legal systems. But I can tell you that we declined to take the vast majority of cases that came to us. And even then we were working at sort of unmanageably high level of cases because such is, such is the need, just to give you a sense at, at this point, the number of people who are facing removal proceedings is, I think, 1.6 million or so, even higher. And those are cases that have taken on, that might take several years. It's also very difficult to sort of manage, even internally as an organization, you know, how you're going to fund a particular case, because one removal proceeding might take seven, eight, nine years. Same goes for an asylum case. You know, if somebody comes into the country and files an asylum application, they might wait several years before they have a first interview with the asylum office. So it's very difficult to sort of manage that. And so people end up working on tons of very, very challenging and complex cases. And I think Second Circuit obviously has seen that and devised its own way of managing immigration cases sort of distinct from any other appeal matter. It is quite a lot. Right. And, you know, one of the other challenges that I've seen and, and we sort of talked about before the interview is this challenge of both fighting within the process, but recognizing that there's a lot of unfairness built into the very system, which as you've already, you've already shared some of the ways that that's problematic. It's problematic in quantity. It's problematic by lack of counsel. It's problematic given that it doesn't sound like the courts are very interested in passing rules that affect large numbers of people, which make, I mean, that's sort of the whole premise of, of the legal system. And that seems to be not really entirely there. How do you reconcile being an advocate within the system, but also recognizing that there are systemic problems? There is a principle that I think guides some of my thinking about this. And, and it is that, or a reality or a recognition, which is immigration law in many ways perfects the worst or, and most perverse 
procedural and substantive instincts of the criminal legal system. We have, again, permanent exile without relief. We have detention without even access to a bond hearing. That is a depressing thought. But that sort of results in at least two realizations. One is that there is ample space for lawyers to make a difference in individual cases. You know, there's tons of studies that have shown kind of the significant impact of having legal representation in the immigration arena, especially in cases where somebody is detained. It, it really makes a substantial difference to have somebody there at your side. And so to the extent that direct representation is something that someone's interested in doing it, it is really fulfilling, even when considering sort of the perversity of what causes this need and, you know, the, the reasons why a lawyer is even needed in the first place. So that's one thing. But immigration lawyers also have to deal with the fact that putting tons of resources in one case might make a difference in an individual's life. And that's really important. I actually want to say something about this before I move on, which is in some ways, I, I think of this as a multiplying effect of in the long term, things are going to change. And if I'm able to help someone kind of have another day in the US, either that person or people around them are going to join in this effort to change this system. I see this very personally. Uh, so my, my mother was working when we just arrived, she was working at a factory, right? So one day iced as a, as a work raid, and she hides in a cardboard box, sort of as an instinct, and she is not arrested. And one way in which I see my work is that had she been arrested, we would have been deported. I would have gone with her back to Ecuador. I wouldn't be here doing the work that I'm doing. And so in many ways, I see that instinct and that the fact that she was able to stay as a sort of something that both permitted me and kind of like guided the work that I do. And so when I, you know, when I work in the, an individual case and, and we get some significant result, I think of that person or the person's kids as sort of like joining in this part and working by numbers. So that's great, but it's still, there's a realization that there are irredeemable aspects of immigration law that can be lawyered even when you work in sort of impact matters, right? One of the things that we do at the clinic is that realizing the limited impact of direct representation, we also have our students do work with grassroots organizations on both litigation and non-litigation impact advocacy. And that has had significant multiplying effects on, on people. But there's part of it that is, again, unsolvable, even, even on a systemic basis, and it just needs to change. And that's part of what keeps me doing the work that I do, which is I also see this as a political practice. I see the work that I do training my students. I see the work that I do being in court, in, interacting with clients as a political kind of practice where I'm able to sort of talk about these issues and hopefully figure out political ways in which we can undo these kind of perverse procedural and substantive aspects of immigration law and abolish it altogether, which is the, the way that I, that I would see it. I think in some ways, good immigration lawyering has to recognize that there's a point in which your, your actions sort of give legitimacy to the system. And so we tried to do that. We tried to figure how a specific action sort of relates to that concept and, and see whether there are ways in which we can, we can avoid giving legitimacy while we're trying to help people who need it at that time. Which is, again, a, a very peculiar aspect because in many ways, um, you know, there are tons of other areas where your job is not to 
completely eradicate the, the system and under which you're working. But it is, or at least it has to be in some significant ways for, for an immigration lawyer. Yeah, that that cognitive dissonance, I can only imagine sort of the, the challenge of it, but also the reward in those moments. And one thing I always like to ask guests is sort of what, if anything, would you recommend to someone who's interested in being part of the solution in big ways, but also potentially in, in smaller ways? So some of the things that I think you've shared are direct representation is one path, more impact style litigation is another path, policy work is a third path. What would you recommend to someone who's hearing this and saying, I want to be in this game, but what are the options to sort of be a player in it? Because immigration is so wide, both in numbers and in sort of like the substantive aspect, there's there's tons of ways in which somebody who's interested in, in doing work in this area can participate. Obviously, if somebody wants to do public interest work and dedicate this, is is they're going to find tons of opportunities to do it. I know that there are a lot of uh, pro se efforts on on law firms as well for individuals to be able to to have some effect on direct representation as well as on some impact matters. I think the benefit is that part of my my career kind of shows this. I've been involved on affirmative cases where I was doing forms. I've been involved in lawyering in court where I was kind of making a case for somebody before an immigration judge or figuring out um, legal issues around, um, you know, whether a particular criminal offense made somebody removable. And so there were all these different aspects of lawyering that I've been able to see and, and they've all had and they all will have, you know, significant impact on a person's life that I think are there. And so there's a vast amount of, of different ways in which you can sort of get involved Probably one of the things that sort of in addition to, you know, the different areas is the fact of figuring out ways in which you can make your work sustainable in the long term, because the system also takes a toll on, on many people. And so figuring out sustainability is another issue. Part of part of the way that I try to sort of have my students work with that is, again, the realization that being a lawyer is should not be their main source of identity, that there's tons of other ways in which they need to find satisfaction and fulfillment. That's part of what I try to do as well. Yeah. And such a challenge. Uh, I just finished doing a whole month of episodes all about mental health in the profession. And to a person, people talked about the need that being a lawyer is so intertwined with so many people's personal identities, my own included. But I can only imagine how much more challenging it is when you really have people's lives at stake in the work you do. Any other recommendations for sort of being able to go home at night and and, and wake up the next day ready for the fight? Some of the ways in which I can do that is that if I weren't doing this, I'd probably feel worse. If I didn't have some part in at least minor part in, in this huge system that sort of impacts so many people, then I would be probably more depressed. And so having the chance to put into action some of the stuff that I do is good. The other thing is there's a ton of the work that we do that is fun. There's a ton of figuring out complexities and figuring out ways in which you can throw wrenches at the system that are really, really fun and intellectually fulfilling. And so finding and, and sort of appreciating the, the fun of using the system sometimes, again, it's a tool. In many ways, the law is a neutral tool. And so giving it the use that you think is proper and finding ways to do that, ways in which you can also make it sustainable. 
I love that. You know, I want to talk about your shift to to clinical teaching. What made you decide to to make that shift and talk a little bit about maybe how how that change has gone going from a work that was in the nonprofit community but a little bit different now from a more academic student-centered place. My kind of move to this clinical area was in fact mainly motivated by my desire to get more work and sort of impact work and the Cardozo Clinic has this really great track record of working with grassroots communities. So that was, to be honest, my, my main reason for joining. The reason I've stayed is that I really enjoy working with students. And, you know, in some ways, one of the reasons I thought that this was a possibility was that somebody who was an intern at African Services Committee and who was also at Cardozo said to me at one point, like, you should be doing that. It was students who opened that possibility to me. It didn't come from my own realization that I wanted to do it. And it has been students in, in many ways, you know, the, the, the people who have enlightened me into sort of like why this is something that I enjoy and where I think I can make a difference too. The process of demystifying the law is, is great and I love it and I enjoy doing that with students, right? Of sort of like finding where they are and, and kind of like letting them know that things might be complex at first, but, you know, there are ways in which you can approach something in several different ways after several different tries and get to it. And, you know, so doing that and making it seem like this is really not that difficult. And the people who are next to you who might seem very smart just have had more of a chance to to get into it than you. I enjoy doing that work and I enjoy seeing how people flourish individually and independently after that. So, And, and it's, it's something that I, you know, that I want to continue doing. That's one aspect of clinical teaching. And the more academic function is to have some time to think about these processes and, and hopefully have some, some time to kind of study them and, and kind of contribute. My perspective, also coming from a direct representation sort of background, I think it's potentially a good, a good voice to add to this area. And so, and so it's been sort of like, you know, I want to do it because I've had the chance to do it. A few reasons why ultimately it's something that I want to continue pursuing. Talk to me a little bit about the difference for somebody who's sort of unfamiliar between an impact type case and a typical direct representation case. I mean, I understand and I think it's probably obvious to say that one is is geared toward a bigger outcome that attack that that handles more people and one is about somebody particular. But what does that change about your daily tasks as an attorney? Yeah, so I I would add be, before I sort of talk about how that translates into the actual work. I think the other distinction that I that I, at least in the immigration arena sort of um, exists between direct representation and, and impact work is in direct representation we often are on the defensive. You know, somebody has been placed in removal proceedings and and we have to fight for this person um, defensively, whereas. When, when we do impact work, we, we generally have more time to think strategically about the areas in which we need to, we want to get into and the areas that where we think we can make a difference. And so that the ability to, to attack rather than defend is, is another sort of area that sort of, I think, makes a difference in, in the way that we approach it. And, you know, that, that's very responsive to, to politics as immigration is in, in many ways, Litigation was a big component um, in the last administration because 
And in some ways, we've now switched into a democratic administration where we're thinking more about non-litigation issues in which in which we can make things happen. And so the ability to think more strategically without having somebody's life at stake immediately is is something that I, I enjoy about impact work. And and that translates also into the difference in, in terms of what I do, right? Like the timelines are different. You might spend several days working up a memo about a specific aspect of um, an envision litigation in a way that, you know, doesn't happen with the more restrictive timelines that exist on, on a direct matter. And so in some ways, yes, deeper, kind of more intense work, but it allows you also to move away from the like very real concrete human consequences that you might find on, on a different type of work. Yeah. And are, do you think there's a sort of a personality or an approach to the world that actually fits direct representation better than than what you seem to be drawn to, which is a, which is a career in impact litigation? What would you say to somebody who's like, what should I see in the mirror and think I should do direct uh, service instead of impact? Yeah, I, I do think there are certain skills that tra- translate really well in impact cases, depending on what you're doing, right? So like, being able to sit down for hours to figure out a like, specific concept is one of those. And there are people who, on the other hand, enjoy the, the, you know, the, the thrill of being in court. And that might not be something that sort of fits well with the person who's in litigation, although obviously litigation is, is one of the components. But having said that, I, I do think that even for a person who wants to do, at least in, in immigration, impact work, getting robust experience in direct representation is critical because it, it's very difficult for a person to sort of understand the, the consequences, motivations of the impact work you're doing without having seen as a lawyer or maybe as an advocate before sort of the way that the system operates and the way that sort of people experience that system, right? Because to go back to the issue of lawyer motivated or lawyer led kind of advocacy, if you if you only come from from an impact lawyering kind of mentality, you're going to miss a lot of the motivations that people actually have in terms of being able to to be part of of this system and you know the ways that the system impacts them. And so I did not plan it this way. <laughs> in any ways, it was you know it just happened. But but I, I do think that there's a significant value, and I I try to recommend this to my students, and you know even even those who have a particular skill or interest in doing impact work that they get, again, robust experience with direct representation. It makes me think about the judge that I clerked for, Judge Katzman, who no one can see this, but I have his picture behind me. And I was thinking a lot about him. He passed away last year uh, around this time. And I was thinking a lot about him before this interview because immigration law, specifically immigration law in New York City, was was one of his deepest uh, passions and the thing that he may have... He, he has a lot of impact on a lot of people. And I think that may be his greatest legacy. And one of the things that he did with clerks, which is very rare, was he only wanted appellate clerks who had had district court clerk experience. And so what you just explained reminds me of his justification for that, which is uh, you can't be as an effective appeals court judge who has to rule on the correct uh, or incorrect outcomes of district court judges and say, you got this right or you got this wrong. If you've never been in that position, you're going to miss things. You're going to miss basic things like really what is standard of review and how does it work? What are burdens of proof? Why did that judge on the trial court make that decision as part of a package of 5,000 where we can sit back 
and make those decisions. It sounds like a very similar reality that if you've been on the ground, if you've made those decisions, then you really have the ability to assess them at a higher level. That makes a lot of sense. And obviously, Judge Katzman's had such a profound impact on, on immigration representation um, in New York and in the rest of the country. The, the clinic where I work is obviously responsive to that. And, and, and that mentality is certainly something that definitely motivates my thinking on, on this issue as well. Having that sense of underground experience is a good thing ethically, I, I believe. But sure, it's going to make you more impactful, as you, as you said, for sure. Well, look, we're getting towards the end of our time together. And one of the things I always like to ask guests towards the end is sort of, what is the thing they wish they knew when they were first starting that they know now? What's that piece of advice that you either have received or that you've given to your students or junior lawyers, whether it's a skill or an experience or a mindset, any of the above of sort of something that you've only come to later in your career that you kind of wish you knew sooner? Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned this previously, and, and it's this sort of realization again that th there are people who you're going to be interacting with that seem to be so far ahead. And, and sometimes the way that we explain it is to say, you know, they're just smarter. And that's something that can't be changed. And more often than not, it's not the case, definitely. You know, people have certain strengths naturally than others, for sure. But a ton depends on the experiences that you've had and not feeling like you have to follow a certain path or that that path is can't be changed. The, the way that I've gotten to being clinical teaching is not the path that is generally followed, right? And here, and, and part of that has to be with like something that I've developed over the years, which is being forgiving with myself when I don't know something and sort of understanding that it's might just take, you know, some few more approaches to, to that particular thing before I can and, and be able to develop that as a part of my skills and my tool set. And so I think forgiveness of, of your flaws and understanding your strengths is, is definitely something that I wish I had. It's something that I've developed and wish to continue developing, but I, that I think that sort of patience is really, is really helpful when, when you're sort of interacting with tons of other people who are you know, very bright and, and smart and capable. And, and you still want to be in that room so that you can have an impact in the sort of things that are interesting and, and kind of important to you. Yeah, forgiveness, patience, experience, those are all things that are very, I think can be very challenging for young lawyers to uh, appreciate. And they are kind of so important. Um, and so I think it's so important that you raise those. I guess my last question then for you is sort of where do you see your career going? One of the fun parts about my podcast is I, I interview people who are just sort of right out of law school and people who have been doing it for 35, 40, 45 years. Where do you see yourself going or where are some of the opportunities going so that we can follow your career uh, with bated breath? I think I'm going to give clinical teaching a go. It's, it's a very challenging space, as you probably well know, any academic sort of work is, is very challenging because there are just a very limited number of opportunities available. And so I'm, I'm going to be in Cardoza for an additional year, which is very exciting for me because I'm, you know, we're going to be getting a new cadre of students and we're working on like, you know, nice cases. And then I'll, I'll figure out what to do in, in that time. Part of for forgiveness and sort of openness is that so far it's worked for me that paths have opened eventually 
in in a way that um, sort of takes some of the anxiety out. And ultimately, I figure it's sort of what's what's important and great about the stuff that I'm doing at that time. So if it's uh, an academic career, that'll be awesome. And if it isn't, then I'll probably be okay as well. I love that. I love that. Well, thank you for your candor. Thank you for your advice. Thank you for your personal story. I think this episode, more than many, really did capture so much of what it means to be an immigration lawyer, but also so much about your personal path and how you let experiences happen, you gained experience, and you found other things that that may not always be joyful, but certainly bring you some level of professional joy. So thank you so much for sharing that with me. That's awesome, Jonah. I've really had a fun time chatting with you. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.